This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. Before the show starts, I'd like to ask you to consider subscribing to News from Science. You've heard from some of our editors on here, David Grimm, Mike Price. They handle the latest scientific news with accuracy and good cheer, which, which is pretty amazing considering it can sometimes be over 20 articles a week. And you hear from our journalists. They're all over the world writing on every topic under the sun, and they come on here to share their stories. The money from subscriptions, which is about 50 cents a week, goes directly to supporting nonprofit science journalism, tracking science policy, our investigations, international news, and yes, when we find out new mummy secrets, we report on that too. Support nonprofit science journalism with your subscription at science.org news. Scroll down and click subscribe on the right side. That's science.org news. Click subscribe. This is the Science Podcast for April 7th, 2023. I'm Sarah Cresty. First up this week, highly pathogenic avian influenza is spreading to domestic flocks around the globe from migrating birds. Why don't many countries vaccinate their bird herds? Staff news writer John Cohen joins me to discuss the push and pull of economics, politics, and science at play in decisions to vaccinate against bird flu. Next up, a crazy method of reproduction in the yellow crazy ant. Researcher Hugo Darris is here to talk about how males of the species are always chimeras, which means their whole body is composed of two different cell lines, one from each parent. Around the world, particularly in the US, Latin America, and Europe, avian flu, highly pathogenic avian influenza, is on the rise. Even one case at a farm can trigger a cull. In 2022, 58 million farm birds were killed to contain the infection. The virus is next to impossible to eradicate because it's carried by wild birds. If you look up the recent cases, you're going to see Canada goose, bald eagle, American crow. Any one of these birds can carry the flu and give it to livestock birds. And beyond birds, humans can actually catch this infection sometimes. But luckily for now, it doesn't spread person to person. This week in science, staff writer John Cohen asked, why aren't we vaccinating or why aren't most farms vaccinating birds against this flu? Hi, John. Hey, Sarah. What is the scale like now for the highly pathogenic avian flu? In 2023, is this problem still growing? It's kind of at a steady state. Growing is kind of funny because it sometimes explodes overnight. <laughs> we haven't had a highly pathogenic avian influenza in the United States since 2015. And this one showed up in February of 2022, and it hasn't left. They're called HPAI for short, highly pathogenic avian influenza, or they're called high paths. They're usually seasonal. They show up with the migratory birds, the birds leave, the poultry farms are okay. These high paths usually burn out in the migratory birds. They get the susceptible ones, and the other ones are immunized. Some of them don't get sick from them. 
And that's that. But this one has evolved into a really fit avian influenza. And it's alarming because it's spreading into poultry, but it's also alarming because it's spreading into mammals. And it's not clear that there's mammal-to-mammal transmission, but it's giving the virus more and more opportunity to adapt to mammals. And that's just one little scary step towards, you know, if mammal to mammal, then we start to worry, it goes to humans and then it goes humans to humans and we have another flu pandemic. Yeah, I want to roll the clock back to pre-January 2020. There's no, co- there's no COVID. <laughs> Me <okay>? too. John, <laughs> I, I definitely want to okay, do so that. So let's just take a little time machine, go back to December 2019. Great. The world was worried about a influenza pandemic, not a coronavirus pandemic. Influenza has always been at the top of the list of worries for virologists, immunologists, public health people. It has created mayhem in the world many times before. So that's always been the biggest worry. And all of the human pandemics with flu that have occurred appear to have jumped from avian to humans. We definitely paid a lot of attention to it before the corona pandemic. This was something that came up so many times in the pages of science, what was going on with the different strains and how people were studying it. Yeah. And Sarah, the WHO, the World Health Organization, has set up over the last 75 years an enormous influenza surveillance system. We didn't have that for coronaviruses. No, we didn't. Yeah, now things have changed. But this influenza surveillance is the best surveillance for any virus. That's why we're picking up all of these birds also. They're getting reported everywhere. So we can see it. Do we have to do something about it is the next question. We talked a little bit about culling. So if you have a a bird that's suspected to have this high path version of the virus, you just kill the flock. Yeah. So there's a history here. The first highly pathogenic avian influenza hit the United States before we even knew what the influenza virus was in 1924. What did we do? If your farm had a bird that was sick, kill all the birds. And we stopped the transport of birds from places that had sick birds. That became more sophisticated over the years with biosecurity, but culling and biosecurity have remained the cornerstones and education of preventing these high paths from taking root and becoming endemic, parking themselves into our poultry flocks. And we have been able, every time since 1924, to get rid of them with that system. So that's the reason why there hasn't been a lot of interest in vaccines until now. So now we're looking at a different situation where these calls, biosecurity is not preventing it from sticking around over multiple seasons. So Europe and the United States have had a similar calling elimination program. Let's eliminate the virus whenever it shows up. Get rid of every high path. Well, China in 2005 decided, let's try and vaccinate all our flocks. It's a lot. Yeah, billions of birds. And China did that because you may remember in 1997, there was an H5N1 that killed humans. That's a kind of influenza. It's, it's one of the high paths, right? Right. It's one of the high paths. Basically, influenza viruses are designated H's and N's to describe their subtypes, which are the surface proteins on the virus, hemagglutin and neuraminidase. And they mix and match. Influenza has this ability to swap genes. So if a bird becomes infected with two different subtypes, it can take an N from a different H5N whatever Mm -hmm. and swap it into its H5, or it can swap H's out. 
Going back to 97, there's an H5N1. That H5N1 goes into humans. It surfaces in Hong Kong. It moves to China, causes a huge problem in Vietnam in 2005. So it's in Asia, really making progress in hurting humans. Not clear whether it's really good at human-to-human transmission. It doesn't seem to be, but it's hitting poultry farmers hard, and they're getting sick. So China says, let's vaccinate all our birds. And they have continued that from 2005 until 2023, and they have evidence that it's done great good to their flocks and to humans. As you say, these viruses update all the time, so they must have to have a way of updating their vaccine over this time? Yeah. So the H5N1 vaccine they have, they've updated 10 times since introducing it in 2005. But then China got hit really hard by an H7N9 that was really killing a lot of humans, infected more than a thousand. So they went whole hog into an H5H7 bivalent vaccine. Okay, so more than one antigen. Yeah, and they shut, they shut down transmission to humans of a dangerous virus. I mean, it's a really remarkable success story. And now are some people considering, you know, taking China's approach and, and vaccinating poultry on farms against, against the high path that's around now? Yeah, there's a lot of movement toward it in Europe and the United States. There's a big push to consider it, but as one veterinarian I quote in my story says, there's science and there's political science. Yeah. What are some of the political cons here? One of the cons is it's theoretically possible that if you vaccinate a flock, a virus will get in and you won't know it, and there will be silent transmissions. Now, if you're doing good surveillance, that wouldn't happen, but There's a kind of a tradition of looking for a sick, dead bird and then saying, oh, let's test the bird. Oh, look, we've had the virus. This would challenge that system. Is that science? Mm, A lot of scientists shrug at it and say, no. And so there's something else going on. So what is that something else? The emu in the corner, if you will, (laughs) is that there's a trade concern. Countries do not want to import poultry that has been vaccinated. Even if it's meat at that point? One might wonder why that would be a concern because there's no evidence that a frozen chicken is going to transmit the virus. But there are trade concerns and the trade concerns have a history and they're mixed up with politics that might not have a whole lot to do with science. Say we do go ahead, say it actually happens. Who would be making this vaccine and how would it be updated and kind of shared across all these different farmers. There are commercial companies that make animal health vaccines. It's an enormous market. The companies that make your pet vaccines make poultry vaccines and make vaccines for all livestock. Right. So birds do already get vaccines. It's just not for... Birds get a ton of vaccines. The question that these companies are asking is, where's the marketplace? Well, the USDA regulates approval of vaccines in the United States. Why would a company make a vaccine that the USDA won't use? If the USDA doesn't give a green light and say, hey, we need these vaccines, the companies aren't going to make them. It doesn't make sense. In 2015, when we had a high path outbreak, the government decided to put high path vaccines into what's called the National Veterinary Stockpile. 
but there are now no avian flu vaccines in the national veterinary stockpile. And they haven't put any proposals out there for the companies to say, hey, we want to invest in this. And the companies are like pulling their hair saying, are you kidding? Pay us. We'll do it. We have a stockpile for human vaccines, right? Yeah. And we have, we have H5N1 for humans in the stockpile. There's something else we haven't talked about that's important, and that's the division within the poultry industry. Is this turkeys versus chickens? It's more complicated than that. Okay. So broilers are chickens that we eat. They, in the United States, are only alive for about eight weeks, which shocked me to learn that. And the eight-week turnaround for the bird creates a question of, well, is it really worth it? That's a short window to get a vaccine on the bird. And... But there's something else. Broilers are 18% exported. Okay. So the broiler industry is hugely sensitive to the notion that their trade would get shut down. That's the broiler industry. So their chicken council has opposed vaccination. But the layers that are doing eggs, those birds stay on farms for a year or even longer. And in a backyard farm, those birds can live for eight years. They want the option for vaccines. And then there are turkey farmers, another huge industry in the United States. Turkeys live for five to six months, and they're really susceptible to high paths. They get sick really easily. Then there are ducks. Well, ducks often don't get sick from high paths. So each one of these industries has a different agenda and a different marketplace. So it sounds like a watch this face type situation at this point to see which, which concerns went out. I think something we've learned during COVID is that we have cycles of panic and neglect. Mm -hmm. If the panic rises high enough, everybody's going to say, oh, no, why don't we have vaccines? <laughs> it's yeah. it's going to be like, you know, there's this old scientific saying that at first, no, it can't be. And then that moves on to, well, it might be, but probably not. And then it becomes, we knew it all along. <laughs> yep. Right now where it may be, you know, probably not. Mm -hmm. If this keeps devastating poultry farms, we're going to move into, we knew it all along. The timeline from USDA for a vaccine coming to market is two to three years. Now, we know with our human influenza vaccines that we update every year. Right. That it doesn't take two to three years to produce, test, and approve. Why is it taking so much longer for poultry vaccines? They do have a system where they can do something similar to our emergency use authorization. So that could happen. There's a possibility, but the official line from USDA in writing to me is two to three years. Wow. Yeah, that's a pretty big wow. That is a big wow. I mean, that's like, we're going to see where this goes, no matter what, then, if they stick with that timeline. Yes. And one veterinarian I quote in my article says, she's seen this before, this discussion with the panic. And she said she doesn't think it's going to lead to vaccination this time around, but it's preparing the future for vaccination. Laying the ground where people are getting their ducks in a row, if you will. Yeah. Yes, okay. that's right. <laughs> it's hard to avoid the puns. I oh, my gosh. I love poultry puns. So, John, you actually visited a chicken farm for your reporting and brought us some chicken noises, too. We have a chicken farm about a half hour drive from my house without traffic. And I went there and the farmer was wonderful. His grandfather started the farm. 
he let me hang out with him all morning, and he has 30,000 chickens. 30,000 chickens? That's a small farm. That's a small farm. And California changed its law so that you have to have cage-free birds now for layers. What cage-free means surprised me. So when people raise free-range, they're just out in the field and they have nest boxes? Is that how they do it? Well, they probably come back in. They'll be maybe have a setup like this. What it means is that he has three barns, each divided in half. So there are 5,000 birds in each portion that is separated from the other birds. And they're crowded together like people on a big city subway car at rush hour. So wing to wing. Yeah, I mean, they can jump around. They have tiers and they can go up and down. It's, there's more freedom to move around than being in a cage. But I looked at it and I said to him, wow, this is a dream for a virus. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and he said, yeah, I've had to increase my vaccinations against different diseases because of it. And then I spoke with his vet and she said that that's happening with all of her farms in California. So I don't know a lot about the industry, so please understand. But I imagine cage-free birds running around and the field and, you know. Just 30,000 birds in the backyard, right? Just frolicking around. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's not cage-free. <laughs> that's beyond cage-free. And so I asked the farmer, you have a lot of land here. Have you thought about doing free range? He said, I have a lot of coyotes here. <laughs> Do you have coyotes that get in here? All the time. Yeah. And do they ever do they ever get the chickens? Yeah, that's why we put up. And the coyotes get onto the land and come to the barn. He goes, look at all the plywood I have on the barn here. That's to keep the coyotes from reaching in and grabbing my chickens. <laughs> he said, if I let them out here on the range, do you know how many coyotes I'm going to have? <laughs> and so it was just a real eye-opener about what the business is. Oh, yeah. Thank you so much, John. Yeah, you bet. John Cohen is a staff writer for Science. You can find a link to the story we discussed at science.org slash podcast. Don't touch that dial or touch screen. Next up is researcher Hugo Darris. We talk about the first animal that appears to always be a chimera. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science. But did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org slash join. That's A-A-A-S.org slash join. In your standard run-of-the-mill sexual reproduction, a male sex cell with half a complement of chromosomes fuses with a female sex cell, also with a half the number of needed chromosomes. They combine and you get a full set, a whole new genome. From there, it's plain old cell division and the making of a new individual. Each cell, a genetic copy, a clone of the original product from the two parents. Of course, there are always exceptions in nature. In some eusocial animals like ants, females have that two copy of each chromosome thing going on in every one of their cells, one from each parent. But the males arise from unfertilized eggs and only have one set of chromosomes in each cell. But of course, things can get even weirder. In this week's issue of Science, Hugo Daris and colleagues wrote about a new way of making babies in yellow crazy ants. Hi, Hugo. Hi, Sarah. Thanks for having me. 
Oh, sure. This is a really fascinating study. I always like it when we find out that animals are doing something that we never thought they could do. (laughs) Uh, So let's first get to the subject of your study, these species, the yellow crazy ants. I guess they are kind of yellow looking, but why are they called crazy? It's because when you when you disturb a nest, the workers go go outside and move in all directions in erratic movements. So they kind of go into a frenzy. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Why did you think there might be something unusual going on with the way yellow crazy ants reproduce? It's a long story. So this species is very well known because it's one of the worst invasive species in the world. So people have been studying it for a long time. Back in 2008, people were starting using genetic markers to study the dynamic of populations. And they realized that there was something weird with the males in this species. When you do genetic on the males, instead of finding only one copy of each chromosome, as you expect in other ant species, as you say, they're haploid normally, people always find two copies of each chromosome. So you wouldn't expect if a haploid ant, one that only has one copy of chromosomes per cell, that they would ever have more than one allele for a gene, right? They would always have the same version of the gene in every cell that you looked at. Yes, exactly. This is a eusocial species. So they have queens, workers, and males. Yes. So the queens and workers are female, and they have two sets of chromosomes. The males are haploid. They only have one set of chromosomes. So this helps determine the sex of the animal and also their role in life. (laughs) the number of uh, sets of chromosomes they have. So there's a lot going on here. (laughs) First of all, juggling the chromosomes like for these animals. So when you looked at males, you saw that they had two different sets of chromosomes in there. What, What did you think might be happening? So could they actually, you know, sometimes be diploid, have some diploid cells? Yeah, so that was the original hypothesis of scientists. This we've seen in many other ant species that sometimes you have these diploid males. But the problem here was that all the males in all colonies across the, the range of the species were always, always at these diploid genotypes. Mm-hmm. So this was really difficult to explain how these species would reproduce with males that are always, always look sterile because they're diploid. Right. You did a number of experiments to test out what is going on with these male ants. Yes. The first one that I read about was this leg test where you looked at what was going on with the cells in one of their legs. What did you find there? Yeah. So to understand what's going on, we decided to look at not DNA extract from the whole individual, but look at the cell levels, compare what's what's the content of, of the male cell versus the female cells. And to our surprise, we discovered that each male cell only contained one copy of each chromosome. So the whole body carried two sets of chromosomes, but each cell only carry one copy, like you expect in an haploid individual. And then we realized that, in fact, these males were collections of two different cell lines within their body, some cells that carry the maternal genome only, and some other cells that only carry the paternal genomes. So at the cell level, these males are haploid, but when you look at the whole body, they're diploid. Right. So we're all, you and I are a collection of cells. Yes. And each one of our cells has kind of this merged genome from mom and dad. The males, like a haploid male, typically would have started out as a single cell with half the number of genes we would need (laughs) and then just clone out and become like one cell line. But these males have 
cells, cell from mom and a cell from dad, they don't fuse. Instead, they just grow together into an animal. They both divide and create a male. Is that right? Yes, exactly. Okay. <laughs> These species don't produce uh, unfertilized eggs as other species to do the males. Yeah. Instead, the male develop from the, the same type of eggs as the female, so fertilized eggs. But in the case of male eggs, the, the parental, the, the gametes, don't fuse and they remain separated in the eggs and each give rise to a separate cell line. So you have individuals that develop with both a cell line coming from only the mother and a cell line only coming from the sperm that fertilizes the egg. Right. Before we get into what's going on with the queen and workers, I just want to dig a little bit longer into the males here. So they are these haploid chimeras. So they have two cell lines inside their bodies, half from the mom and half from the dad. They're not fused. They don't do any crossover, nothing like that. Yes. <laughs> are they kind of randomly assorted throughout the body of the ant or are there certain tissues or areas that are, you know, from the mom and certain from the dad? Yeah, so we look at that. And the distribution of the two cell line is quite variable, both within males and both males. So sometimes you have an organ that would carry the two cell line. Sometimes you can also have individuals that have like one antenna with only the, the genome of the mother and the other antenna with only the genome of the father. Really interesting. But most importantly, what about the gametes that they make? So if it's a male, it's going to contribute the sperm to reproduction. You know, is it always from the father then? Some males produce gametes with the genome of the mother. Some males produce gametes with the genome of the father. Some males produce both. But when we look across a large number of males, what we see is that there tends to be a bias. Mm -hmm. So the non-reproductive cells of the males typically tend to have more often the maternal genomes, while their germ cells, so the, the sperm cells, typically have more often the paternal genomes. And this leads us to to speculate that maybe there could be a conflict between the maternal and paternal genome to access the reproductive cells and become transmitted to the next generation. So not only are the males of this species different, they're haploid, but they're also chimera. They have two cell lines existing in their bodies. The queen and the workers, those are both females, also have something unusual going on with their genomes. Yes. So in ants, normally... The whole colony consists of females, and you only have males during a short period of the year. These females are either queens or workers. In most ant species, the queens and the workers have the, the same genomes. They develop from the same eggs. And it's only during developments that uh, environmental factors or maternal inputs lead to development into either a queen or a worker. But another surprising thing we discover in these species is that the queens and workers didn't have the same genomes. They carry really different genetic makeup. So to understand what's going on, we look at genetic variations across the species range. And we discovered that there was two cryptic genetic lineage in this species that we call R and W, mm -hmm. because they segregate differently in reproductive queens and in worker. These are kind of like the cell lines we were talking about before, R and W. Yes. So if you take a queen, no matter where you are in the distributional range of the species, they always carry only the R genomes. And this queen, they store in the spermatica, which is the, the organ that an insect um, is used to store sperm. They carry both R and W sperm. Mm -hmm. When they fertilize an egg with the R sperm, it's developed into a new queen. But when they fertilize the eggs with the W sperm, it's become a worker. 
So in this piece, this cast determinations with a neck developed into a queen or a walker, it's not determined by environment anymore. It's determined by the genotype of the sperms that fertilize the eggs. And let's not forget, those sperm come from these haploid males. And so they're making either R or W sperm. The queen is taking that, holding onto it, and then making different worker or queen eggs from it. Yes. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> okay. That's, a bit, <laughs> that's too complicated. <laughs> Woo. So we kind of have almost like three different species here <laughs> in some weird ways. We have the queen, which is, uh, you know, two copies of the maternal genome. Yes. We have the workers, who is a combination of the maternal and paternal. And then we have the males. Yes. You mentioned early on when we started talking about yellow crazy ants that they're an incredibly invasive species. Yes. Is there any relationship between the fact that they are such successful and powerful invaders between that and what's going on with their chromosomes and these cell lines? Maybe, maybe not. <laughs> <laughs> so one thing that's special um, could perhaps explain the success of this species is that because workers are always produced from gametes that come from different lineage, they're always first generation hybrids. So in the worker, there's never inbreeding. Inbreeding is one of the major challenge invasive species face when they colonize new habitat because of small population size. Yeah. So in the case of the yellow crazians, you don't see this inbreeding at all in the workers. You can start a population with just a queen and a, and a male, and they would produce first generation hybrid workers. And each subsequent generations, always you're going to have first generation hybrid workers. So workers are always outbred, no matter what the population size is. So perhaps this could be something that help the species thrive in colonizing new habitats. What else would you like to see worked out about what's going on with yellow crazy ants? What are their questions do you think need to be answered? Well, there's so much we, we don't know about this <laughs> system yet. It's like why sometimes the maternal and paternal gametes fuse and sometimes they don't fuse. What's the molecular mechanisms responsible for that? Right. Also, what's the origin of the system? So now we have a snapshot of what's going on or now, but how the system was formed in the first place. This we don't really understand yet. Thank you so much, Hugo. Thank you very much for having me. It was a pleasure. Hugo Dares is an associate professor in the Institute of Organismic and Molecular Evolution at Johannes Gutenberg University. You can find a link to the paper we discussed and a related commentary at science.org slash podcast. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions, Write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. You can listen to the show on our website, science.org slash podcast, or search for Science Magazine on any podcasting app. This show was edited by me, Sarah Crespi, and Kevin McLean, with production help from Podigy. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started.
You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science. But did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join.